0: I invite you to open a Bible to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that's been provided for you, you'll find our text beginning on page 980 and then continuing on to 981 of Philippians chapter 2. The series that we're in is entitled Mission Possible, God's plan for the world and for you and for me. And that is what we primarily discover when we open the pages of our Bibles. We learn about who God is and what he's up to. If you look really, really hard, you won't find your name in the Bible. You won't find my name in the Bible. It's not there. What the Bible primarily wants to reveal to us is who God is and what he is up to. And Philippians 2, 5 through 11 in particular tells us that he's on a mission. He is seeking to accomplish something. And we've said this for a couple of weeks now, but if God is on a mission, then it's possible. What he is seeking to accomplish in us and in our world is possible because as Jesus said, and as our own motto quotes of our state, with God, all things are possible. And we've we've walked now for, we're on the fourth week of going through this very, very short passage because it's a summary passage of what we find all of the Bible to point to. And the first thing that we saw is that in accomplishing his mission, God was willing to leave heaven. God sent his son, Jesus, who enjoyed all of the benefits that heaven could provide, and he was willing to leave that so that he could come and be among us. He had every reason to stay right where he was. But to accomplish his mission, he had to leave the comfort and the security that heaven provided. And in leaving, he chose to live among us, to become one of us. And he lived surrounded with the limitations that we often are surrounded by, and surrounded by the temptations that we are surrounded by. And although, with all of the limitations that he had, like we do, he never sinned. And though he was sinless, he died. And it was his death that we looked at last week. That though he was guilty of no crime, could be accused of no harm towards any other person. He was executed as if a criminal. Suffered on a cross as if guilty of something. And we said last week, if if we were reading the Bible as any other story, his death at the age of 33, innocent of anything, would just frustrate us to the point that we'd probably stop reading the book. Why is the story going this way? Why is he who has not done any sin, who's not caused harm towards anybody, why is he dying? Unless there is some purpose in his dying, and that we saw last week, that he was willing to not only leave heaven and to live among us, but to die for us, so that we did not have to face the consequences of our sins. And today our attention will turn to now, after his dying, his rising. And so we'll reread from verse 5 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's where we'll stop in Philippians 2. And today we're zeroing in and locking in on verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The first word in our verse is therefore. It's a conjunction. It's connecting what is before to what is about to follow. Now, we get a lot of times when people make comments to us and we know that something's coming. We know that the comment is not in and of itself contained. There's something coming. So when somebody comes up to you and they say, now, I, I just want to start by saying, you usually do a really good job. You know something else is coming. That that doesn't finish it. That's not complete. They're, they're saying something else. Or... With all due respect, and you're starting to lean in. or Now, I want you, I don't mean this in a bad way. And you're like, oh, okay, what is it that you don't mean in a bad way? But we're expecting something to follow. But there are times when we get statements and we get news and information that we, we take as, that's it, there's nothing else to say. And some of you have gotten this and you experience experienced getting the phone call when somebody calls you to let you know that your aunt or your cousin or your mother or somebody has died. When you get that news you don't expect more. It finishes something. It ends something. But Paul, right after talking about the death of Jesus, that he was willing to die, even to the point of death on a cross, has a conjunction, has a therefore, that his death leads us to something. There is actually more to say because he died. There's more for us to listen in on. There's more for us to pay attention to. Now, when we're confronted with death, the only person who can say more is God. The only person who's not limited by death is God. And so that's where he starts. He says, therefore, God, but this life that he lived and this death that he died, now something else will be done. There is something else to say, but that something else to be said can only be said By the Father, and good news, he has something to say. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus. And so we see that the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope beyond the grave. Because of Jesus' death and the willingness of the Father to raise him up, to give him and exalt his position, we see that there is hope beyond the grave. That we as Christians believe that death is not the end, but that there is something for us to say. There is more to learn. And we submit ourselves now to learn from the person who exists beyond the grave. That Jesus who came from heaven is the authority to tell us what heaven is like. Jesus who rules and reigns in eternity is the authority to tell us what eternity is all about. And this is what Jesus said of himself before he died. And so I'll invite you to turn the Gospel of John in chapter 11. We'll see how this plays out in the life of Jesus right before he gave up his own life. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. You'll find it on page 897. John eleven seventeen reads, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. But Here's Jesus dealing with the death of a friend of his that he loved. And others who are coming to him and saying that if you would have been here, we believe that you could have maybe prevented this from happening. But they too having this sense that death is the end. There is a period. There is nothing left to say until a a long time later in in a future resurrection. But Jesus comes to them and says, I am the resurrection that you're hoping for. I'm the reason that you actually should believe in a future resurrection. And I have the power. I am the resurrection and the life. And though people who believe in me will die, yet they are going to live. And they're going to live so much. And in such a reality that you could then almost say they never really died. It's an interesting flow. He says, though you die, you will live. And then he says, and if you believe in me, you're never going to die. What do you mean? You means something about the life that we are going to experience that will so supersede and transcend what we think of as life around us that in some ways we'll be able to say that we never really died. We know that when we think about our own lives, don't we? That so much of what we see in what we already call life is actually death. Our bodies are decaying. Our world is decaying. It's in our own law of thermodynamics that if you just leave something alone, just don't touch it, what will it do? Deteriorate. Go into that room in the basement that you haven't been in for six months. What do you expect to encounter when you get in there? That it looks exactly the same or that it looks much worse? That there's a lot more dust than there used to be. But actually, what we're surrounded by is decay and death. And when we experience the real life that he has for us, we will say of ourselves that we actually never really died. And this is something, therefore, that God and God alone can say, because Paul tells us then we can have confidence in it, because God has highly exalted him. We're back in Philippians. God has highly exalted Jesus. Now, it's specific Jesus has been exalted. Not Jesus' memory. Paul's not trying to encourage us by saying, you know, Jesus died, but he'll live on in your heart and my heart if we just remember him. And so if we celebrate communion, then that'll be just a way for you and I to remember who he was. But it's not his memory that's been exalted. He's been exalted. It's not his memory that's been exalted. He has been exalted. The one who died has life again. That you can refer to him as being around, as being somewhere, as being able to be spoken to because God has highly exalted him. And that is what we as Christians celebrate, that Jesus not only lived, but also he lives And so we do remember things in the past, but we celebrate his work among us in the present because we believe that he is still living, that he is still up to something, that he is still working. And we see this, uh, Paul really lines this out for us in 1 Corinthians 15. If you'll turn there, we'll read a few verses. On page 961. Paul talks about the resurrection and the fact that Jesus lives. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12, says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's what Christians proclaim, that Jesus is alive, he's raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised stop there for one second Paul is saying what we're proclaiming is that Jesus was raised again that he's alive And that is so much the central claim of what we're saying, that if that's not true, then our preaching and everything we're doing is in vain. If he is not alive again, if he is not alive right now, then what we're preaching is in vain. And so these people who don't believe in a future resurrection are undermining their very confidence In the gospel. And we'll go back to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain, and we are of all people most to be pitied. If we only have hope in him in this life, because as we've already discussed, and most of us nodding our heads in agreement, that we admit about our world that it's struggling, we admit that there is sin, we admit that there is decay, So when we deny the resurrection, all we have is what we've admitted with no hope of redemption. But denying God's existence, denying his power, denying the hope of the resurrection doesn't take away any of the decay. It doesn't take any any of the battle that we have with sin away. All that gets removed when we deny that Jesus lives now is the promise, the hope and faith in a future. And so it's central to our faith. It's not just one thing we believe among many. It is the main thing that we believe as Christians that the one who died and gave himself up for us lives. He's been exalted. He has risen again. And in this rising, Paul then says he's been given a name that is above every name. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. And so we can say that the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope above every name. So there is something beyond the grave, and there is a power and a hope that he has above every name and every power and every authority that we have encounter. We are blessed to have a number of things that we can have confidence in that people just a hundred years ago didn't have available to them in the form of advance in science and medicine and what we know about our bodies, what we know about the way the world works and how the advantage that we have to utilize those things. But Paul wants us to see that in every other name that exists, and some of them exist for a reason, and there's there's promise in them, what we have in Jesus is a hope that is above all of that, that supersedes and transcends every other hope and every other name that we could encounter. And the writer of Hebrews gives us this amazing vision of Jesus and who he is i just ask you to listen to it. I'll read it. If it's helpful to you to close your eyes, then you can. But just listen to the way in which this Jesus, who is risen again, is described in the very, very beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much Superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What a profound description. Jesus upholds the universe by the word, by the power of his word. He upholds the universe. That's crazy to say about someone who you've seen and had lunch with and had a conversation with. Unless what you've also seen is him suffer a death that he rose again from never to die again. The only way somebody could make such bold claims about Jesus, who had seen him, is if they'd seen him risen again. And so the Father gives him a name that is above every name, and it's that name that we sang about that brings grace to hungry souls, that brings healing to the sick, his name that is exalted above all name. And so we ask the question where Paul began. What now? What is it now that you and I as followers of Jesus are to do about these truths that we hear? And Paul says in verse 5 that we are to have this mind among ourselves which is ours in Christ Jesus. And then it gave us our description of him. And so if we're going to have this mind of Jesus who was willing to leave, willing to live, willing to die believing that he would rise. How do we have that mind among ourselves? And the first point that I'd like to highlight for us is that we live in the confidence that God is still at work. Please turn to Romans chapter 8. This is on page 944. Jesus believed that he could allow suffering to come upon him. He could allow death to p- come upon him because he knew that his Father would still be at work and that he would experience the resurrection. And so now, knowing that, he wants to give to you and to me a similar type of confidence that God is for us. And so this is what he says in verse 31. who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to go back up to verse 34. That this Jesus who died but more than that was raised is right now at the right hand of God Interceding for us. That means he's praying for us. And if you could, if you just had to think about it and write it down on your handout, just think about it. What do you think he's praying for you? Paul is saying that he's interceding for you. So what is it that you think he's praying for you and for me? We get examples in Jesus' life of two prayers that he offered. He taught his disciples a prayer when they asked him and they said, teach us what to pray. And he gave them a prayer and we could look at that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, and find wisdom in there. Right before he died in John 17, he also offered a prayer and we can see what he said in that prayer. But one of the things that we get in the Lord's Prayer is he, he tells all of his disciples to say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that you and I would hear Jesus praying that his kingdom would come throughout the earth and that it would be on the earth as it is in heaven, that God is thinking about the whole world, that his purposes are global, and that he's praying for us that we would become a part of that, that we would be involved in that, that we would be agents of his to bring about his kingdom in all of the world, that that's what he's up to, is bringing his kingdom on this earth to seeing people be made disciples so that his will, instead of being resisted, is obeyed. His name, instead of being mocked, is worshipped. And so that's what we believe that God is up to in our world. He is bringing about his kingdom and he is praying for us. He's not praying for us that we be in the most comfortable situation we could possibly be in. He's not praying for us that we never experience any difficulty. He is praying that in no matter what difficulty comes, whether, as Paul lines them out, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sore, that whatever that is, we would believe about ourselves, that we will overcome and that we will be more than conquerors through him and believing in the future promised reality of the resurrection, we will give ourselves to the advancement of his kingdom. That's what he's praying for us for. That's how he's interceding for us, and he's still at work. It shouldn't need an extra statement to say, I hope it's encouraging to know that Jesus is praying for you. I mean, when we suffer with things, we ask each other to pray for one another, and it is an encouragement to hear that other people are praying for us. How much more of an encouragement should it be that the one who died for you, the one who rose again, is now praying for you? And that that knowledge of that should overwhelm the knowledge of any others who pray. The second thing... This is something that John the Baptist realized. We seek to decrease so that Christ might increase. <clears throat> if the central conviction of our faith is that Jesus has risen again, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he's at work, then our lives and our mission is not to promote ourselves but to decrease ourselves, to become increasingly irrelevant in ourselves so that people would know and come to experience Christ. And John the Baptist knew that. He was just a sign pointer. You know, a whole group of people following him. And as soon as Jesus came on the scene, he said, there's the guy to follow. Don't keep following me. This, this, is, this is what I've been telling you. This has been my life's work to tell you about him. So don't, don't start following follow him. But I, the whole time I've been pointing to him and he's here. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world, he's here. And so follow him. So if we're living out the prayers that Jesus offers on our behalf, we will seek not to build our own kingdoms and our own followers, but that people through our lives will become followers of Jesus and servants of him because he alone died and rose again for them. And then last, we will invest in eternity our hope beyond the grave. Jesus invited all of his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 to invest in eternity. To believe that a future resurrection was coming. And so he said to them in verses 19 through 21 of Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, where a hurricane can come in an evening. And flood it all. Don't put your treasure there. Where it can disappear. Where it can go away. He says lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust. Earthquakes or hurricanes. The devil or sin. Destroys. And where no thief can break in and steal. For where your treasure is. There your heart will be. Also, and he, he's trying to draw us forth an encouragement: if we can get excited and get motivated and work long hours and be creative and innovative, to lay up treasure in a place where moth and, and, and destroys, shouldn't we be all the more innovative and creative and passionate and willing to work hard to lay up treasure where we know it's secure? to invest in a reality that we know cannot be shaken. It's an invitation on the part of Jesus to say, if you believe that I have risen again and that you will rise again with me, that anyone who believes in me will never die, then in the details of your lives, invest in that. Show others that you are banking on a future reality that your hope is not in everything you can attain and acquire in the here and now, but that there's this willingness to let go of, this willingness to not hold on to because you believe something greater is coming. I mean, if I were to offer you 10 bucks at the end of service today or a million dollars when you came back tonight, which would you take? It'd be foolish to take 10 bucks now, right? Is it it too inconvenient to just come back in a couple hours? And Jesus is saying, I'm I'm offering you perfection. I'm offering you complete security and joy and fulfillment. Can you wait for it? Can you give away what you're currently holding on to as a testimony to the fact that you believe in it? Let's kneel as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we get on our knees that you are risen and standing at the right hand of your Father, that as we take time to pray, we thank you that we can rest in the confidence that you are praying and that you are interceding on our behalf. so we lift up prayers as you taught us that your kingdom would come that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven Father help us to become excited and attracted to what you're doing and to become passionate and creatively involved and investing in the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that you have something to say beyond the grave and that you have power that is above every earthly power. And so it's to you and to you alone that we pray. In your name, amen.